Arlev, you're next. Hi, Tom. Hello. Um, you've said that when we reincarnate, uh, we keep the quality of our consciousness. Um, are there any personality traits that we keep from one life to another? Uh, and do we continue to meet the same people, for example, our parents, our spiritual teachers in the, in, in the other lives? And if so, do we work over uh, specific issues we had with them, with them previously? Uh, that's possible. It's not typically what's done, but that's possible that that can be done. Um, do you come in with specific personality traits? I'd say depends on how specific you want to get. In general, you come in with quality, but the quality actually determines a lot of what your attitudes and personality traits are. You know, a very low, you know, a very low quality of consciousness tends to be very self-centered. It's all about me, me, me. Um, so if the person comes in and their personality trait is that they're very self-centered, well, then, yeah, you bring that along. But it's not so much that you brought the personality trait along. It's that your personality traits are, are representative of your quality. So that's basically the way that works. You work, you know, your quality comes along and your personality traits represent that, that quality. So in that way, yeah, they seem to be sort of continuous, but it's not really the traits that are the, the issue. It's the quality that's, that's the issue. So when you have a, you know, a three-year-old who is not self-centered, but very giving and very caring of other people, you know, well, that's somebody who has a real high quality of consciousness and they come in and they're still a three-year-old and they still have a three-year-old's view of the world, but they don't act like a three-year-old. They act like someone much older. They seem to understand things a lot better. Their sense of, of, uh, of self doesn't dominate everything else. So yes, that's, you know, that does, come along each time. Now, if you have issues with individual people in a, an incarnation, let's say you always fight with your mother or you, you always have some kind of issue with somebody else, and that gets to be a very deep part of your psyche, this issue keeps going round and round and round and round and doesn't ever seem to heal it's unlikely that you're going to come back with that same other consciousness that it was your mother to try to work that out. But no doubt you will come back and have those same kinds of things to work out with somebody. So you'll, you'll come back and have to work that out, but it'll be in a different situation. You know, you might be a different sex, different part of the world, different culture, everything might be different, but you still have those same kind of, issues to work out, you know, maybe it's abandonment issues or something else, you know, because when you were three years old, you know, your mother ran off with a big guy on a motorcycle or something, and you never really got over it. So, you know, you won't necessarily have to work it out with her. It may be that abandonment is now part of your fear. And that's part of your quality. So next time you may be um, a little standoffish or afraid to get too close to people. You know, 
you kind of always have to keep some distance because you don't want to be hurt, you know, and you may come in with that. And then that will affect the people around you. And then that, you know, it all plays out that you have to, you have to outgrow it some way, not necessarily with the same people that established it, but you do have to outgrow it eventually. But often it's easier to outgrow it in a different situation than just repeating the same old situation. You know, sometimes you just get stuck in a rut and it's, it's easier to get out of that rut if you're constantly coming up with new situations you're expressing the same kind of need, the same kind of fear, but you have a totally different way of approaching it now. And that's easier for you to learn that than it is if you go back into that same rut. So I think in general, you don't want to go back and try to work out the same issue with the same people. You'll work out the same issue with other people in all sorts of different contexts, which makes it easier for you to, to succeed. Because sometimes one context will make it easier for you to succeed than some other context. And every little bit of success helps, you know, helps all the rest of the success. So again, diversity is a really great tool to use. Sameness tends to not progress very quickly. Thank you very much, Tom. Uh, you're welcome. Marcin, go ahead with your question. Uh, thank you, Donna, and uh, thank you, Tom, for continually uh, letting us uh, ask you questions and for everyone involved in this. I'm very happy to, to be here. Um, I am a, a computer scientist, and uh, it was very interesting to me when, when, uh, when you said that, uh, of course, computers will be conscious one day. It's just a matter of, of what decision space they have, and it's it just interesting for and IUOC to, to come in and, and, mm -hmm. and play as one. So here's the question. As computers become conscious, they may be more common than people. The reason for that is we are just more, the process of creating computers is more efficient than the process of creating humans. Mm -hmm. and so what if we build a server that runs VR, VR games and continuously sends them sense data of their player and lets them decide on action. So what if we take a bunch of those conscious computers, put up the server that sort of lets them play a game with mm -hmm. each other to sort of like mimic the, the social interactions that we have in the real world? Well, what you're doing is creating another situation in which individuated units of consciousness can learn and grow up. So. Um, you have another situation then that's very much like our virtual reality. You have a different virtual reality that you've set up wherein learning is a, is the point of it. You said it has to have its own server. You know, it has to keep track of all the players and what they're doing and how they're doing it. So you, you set all of that up and there you go. You have a, you have another world, if you will, another virtual reality that's been created that is a valuable space to grow in. Right. But now, but now it's one that's a derivative of this virtual reality. Yes. I mean, the, the, the reason why I asked this question is that 
I think it's just like our world could support more computers, more conscious computers, mm -hmm. and it could support people. And I was wondering if LCS would, would be happy to to see us like create environment for so many IOCs to, to learn. Well, you know, it, uh, you're making more things that are similar. Um, you know, one might say that, well, they're different. You know, the conscious computers aren't the same as conscious homo sapiens because homo sapiens have different sets of choices than the computers have. But if the computers are in virtual reality, then they could have the same kind of choices that we have. They would have avatars there, and maybe their avatars would, uh, you know, have a head, shoulders, arms, legs, and, you know, speak languages like we do. So it's basically just creating another virtual reality. The difference is that now it's a virtual reality nested inside of another virtual reality. Because if we humans just go up and find the big plug that has the server attached to it and just pull the plug out, then that other virtual reality suddenly stops progressing. And nobody in that, you know, has any more experience. There's no more data streams being sent out to players. It turns off. So it's a subset of ours. And you can have subsets creating subsets, creating subsets, and you can make this chain. But it's not good computer science in the sense that it becomes very fragile. You have this chain that's wholly dependent on the subset, you know, upstream from it. And anything goes wrong in any of those things, then, you know, it all just stops. So it's not as a robust computer science solution to have virtual realities, major subset virtual realities inside of virtual realities. Though it's possible, it's just not real functional. Because, you know, if we started that and we had a, we had a virtual reality and, and that virtual reality could then create its own virtual reality, which then could create its own virtual reality, and that could go on to where you had all these, you know, it'd be like a big Venn diagram with a whole bunch of concentric circles. And uh, that would be very fragile because somebody up then at our level just pulls one plug and all, you know, N virtual realities all go, all go dead all at once. So it's, it's uh, not very robust. So the system wouldn't particularly want to build virtual realities inside of virtual realities for that reason. It would tend to, to do one-offs and let them be. But no doubt we could do that. And yes, uh, computers, uh, you know, they uh, have advantages over people in some ways in that they don't consume as much resources. They don't have to, you know, they don't have to eat. You know, they don't have to take, you know, they don't have to sleep. They don't have to take potty breaks. You know, they uh, have a lot of advantages as far as ability to put time in. But then they would be confined by their by their experience. But your point is they could get that more complex experience in a virtual reality. So a virtual reality creates another virtual reality. Then those computers could be playing humans in their virtual reality. And then they'd have all the choices and decisions that we have, same kind of decision space that humans have. So possible, but not practical in the sense that 
nesting virtual realities is is not uh at least not doing it very deeply you know it's just not a real good idea it builds up a system that's not robust thank you mario if you would like to go ahead with your question yeah i was reading your big toe trilogy i just read it in little bits and pieces and i tend to underline bits that seem more that stand out for me um the line in particular that interested me was about npmr beings and it said <clears throat> these beings are assigned to help you in every way they are focused directly on you to plan encourage and guide your spiritual growth so i wanted to ask what is could you speak a little bit about the nature of these beings and uh and how do they encourage us mm -hmm. how could we be more attuned to them so that we can pick up what guidance they said okay the beings you're talking about are what many people refer to as guides okay. people that uh, seem to help us give us information give us pointers give us guidance that's just why they call them guides a guide isn't really a being like we think of a being. I mean, what is a being? Well, in the larger system, if you think, what is a being? Well, it's something that interacts with us. That's how we define it. So if we're out in the in our body and interact with somebody else, and that somebody else talks to us, interacts with us in a in a way, then we say that was a being because rocks won't interact with us. So it wasn't a rock, it was a being. So anything that interacts with us, we call it a being. And our guides are really nothing more than our own personal interface to the larger consciousness system. So anything that interacts with us, not only do we call it a being, we tend to dress it up and make it look humanoid. So when we interact with something, it talks, we talk back, it interacts in that way, it's a being. And if we visualize that being, it'll look something like us because that's our default pattern for a being that you can talk to is something like us. Now, if it were such that we talk to our dogs all the time and the dogs talk back, then we got a message, we'd have to decide whether it was a dog or a, or a human, but the only thing that talks back to us are humans that, you know, involves us in interactive thought exchanges and language and all of that or other humans. So we just automatically make it look like a humanoid kind of character. And then we call it a being because it's animated and it speaks to us. It has free will. It talks to us. But then we jump to the conclusion that somehow there's a there's a person out there just kind of flying around waiting for us to call, waiting for us to ask a question or to need some guidance. And otherwise, you know, we come up with ideas like angels, you know, and they fly around with us. And when we need them, they appear. And when we don't, they disappear and so on. But it's a much and you can have those ideas. But. I tend to always pick the concept that is the simplest and don't add things to it. So the simplest comment is just to say, 
That's your personal interface with the larger consciousness system. Well, what are we? We individuated units of consciousness are just a piece of the larger consciousness system. So we call ourselves beings and we're pieces of the larger conscious system. So if we have an interface with the system, anything that sends us data stream, that's a, that's a being. So a subset of the larger conscious system can just bubble up and, and interact with us because we need something. We need a little help. We need some focus. So it does because the system is incentivized to work with us because as we lower our entropy, its entropy lowers because we're a part of it. It's the larger system of which we're a part. So as its parts lower their entropy, it, it lowers its average entropy as well. So it wants us to succeed. It helps us to succeed by giving us some pointers and giving us some advice and guiding us if we're open to it. If we're not open to it, we never hear about guides. What guides? Never heard of a guide, you know. You know, people have been all their life and never talked to anybody non-physical, and that just sounds ridiculous. And, you know, if it didn't happen to me, then it couldn't have happened to anybody kind of an attitude. And it obviously doesn't happen. And the people who think it does happen, well, they must be nuts. Or they must be imagining things. They have good imaginations or they're hallucinating. But the system will work with you. Not necessarily in, you know, the language of your choice, in spoken words, it can do that too. But it's often by other things, nudges, intuitive feelings, uh, signs, whatever kind of language you develop with it, you know, it can, it can work within that, those language parameters. Uh, natural language is less constrained. I mean, some people do signs, like I knew a lady who had a pendulum and she'd hold this pendulum up, and if it rotated this way, it would meant yes, and if it rotated that way, it meant no. So now she could always get yes-no answers out of her guides because that was her communication tool. Well, things like that work. You know, you can put your arm out in the air and let somebody, you know, push it up or down, you know, the, and uh, that'll work as a communication tool just like the pendulum. You get a lot of yes-no answers out of it, but... It doesn't all have to be yes, no. Yes, no is just a, one of the simplest communication schemes that we can imagine. It can be much more complex than that. It can be natural language, or it can be something even more than that. It communicates in feelings. It communicates uh, sometimes in pictures. Whatever. Whatever works best for you. The system will do it, but you have to be ready for it. Take the information and do something useful with it. If all you you know you want to do is is um, you know find out things that serve your ego, then it's going to stop talking to you. Or if you're not interested at all because you think it's all ridiculous, you're not going to get that. And if you did get that, you'd deny it. You'd say, "Oh, that must have just been my imagination." Even if you did get it, you'd throw it away. So that's what guides are. The system is available to help as you can use the help and are open to it. But I would caution you to always use your own free will. 
sometimes people get into this idea that the larger system obviously is smarter and has a bigger picture than I do. So if it says I should turn left instead of right, I'm going to do that. Okay. And many times that's a good move. It's probably saved my life several times when I've gotten to a certain place and I get this strong idea that I need to do something that's different than I usually do. And then I find out that just by minutes or seconds, I missed some kind of terrible accident that was going to happen right up there. Well, okay. Thank you, system. That that turn was good. I paid attention and I took it. But other times, if you if you get into the habit of letting your guides make your choices for you, then that's not good. You're giving up your free will. You're no longer learning. Now you're just an obedient monkey, you know, following directions. You're no longer growing. So at that point, the system will start giving you misinformation. It'll start giving you stuff that makes your life harder rather than easier just to break you from the habit of always following, you know, somebody else's guidance. So you just have to learn when you kind of immediately, you know, if you're if your intuition says duck, duck. Well, if I get that, I duck right away. But if your intuition says, well, you know, yeah, take a take a walk off the end of that cliff. Don't worry. Gravity won't affect you. I'll say, nah, no thanks. I don't think I want to do that. My always has to be my choice. My free will is always in charge. And even if I do something because I was told to duck and I duck, it's still my choice to do it. I'm not doing it because I was told to do it. I'm doing it because I got the information, considered it, and decided it was a good idea. So it always has to be my choice. So that's the kind of the caveat that goes with guides. Don't get dependent on guides to make choices for you. It always has to be your choice. But I would say generally consider what they say. And unless you see a problem with it, I tend to go along with it because my experience is that those guides come up with some really necessary and good information. And almost never do I get any bad information. So I'm pretty trustful. When I get messages like that, I tend to do it because it works out. But I always think about it first and make it my choice, not just following a direction. Uh, in my case, I, I don't. I thought of another danger, which is um, I read into things what I want to read into things, you know. And um, I thought that was a possible danger. It I'm is. Aware of it, and I try to be light about it. But if yes. I could give an example, I woke up in the morning a little while ago. Someone sent me a message, and I replied, "Okay, something, something." And then I looked at the message, but instead of writing okay, I'd written om. So I immediately said to myself, yes, meditate in the morning for a few minutes. That would be a good thing to do. I know the mm-hmm. M is next to the K, and it was a mistake, but I took it like that. <laughs> and I did that. 
and I do that now, and I'm doing that as an experiment to see how sure. it goes. Absolutely. Do it as an experiment. That is the way all of this needs to be done. Just work with it and see where it goes. Sometimes you'll build confidence in it. Other times you won't. So that's, yeah, you just have to see what works. And you're right. It is a very big risk that if you, if your ego is in charge, you'll start to hear things that are just what it is you want to hear. You know, you start living in a bubble where if uh, you have beliefs, then those seemingly intuitive voices will just be always supporting your own beliefs. Well, that means it's probably not some intuitive voice at all. It's just you uh, are telling yourself things that go along with your beliefs just because that makes you feel better. And you're thinking that it is some outside information that you're getting, and it's not. It's just inside information you're creating. So that is a risk. You're right. And the thing to do is always be skeptical of everything. Look at all of it as an experiment and use what works and throw away what doesn't. May I follow up with a question? Is there time for that? Sure. Um, I started, I came across your videos two years ago and started watching a lot of them. I think I must have seen all of them and some of them many times over. But I think it was all an intellectual process. It was very stimulating, mm -hmm. but um, nothing much was changing. In fact, a lot of things got worse. But that was stimulating. But at a certain point, I thought, you know, you have to do things a bit differently. And... Um, Anyway, I started culpiting up to other people who talk about, I don't know, enlightenment and so on, you know, and uh, people who I never would have listened to before, but you opened that up with your approach. Mm -hmm. And after some time, maybe it was after a year, I started being able to listen to these people and put them into some context. And, but what I discovered was that there are a lot of people, young and old, and of different backgrounds who, um, and this is a touchy area now to use words, but seem to be enlightened or have awakened or however you want to put it, mm -hmm. but also saying that it's an ongoing process, not the I'm enlightened and I have arrived sense. Yeah. yeah. And I've just become aware that, hey, there's a lot of, well, I don't know, a lot of, but there's a lot more people than I thought, and a lot more ordinary people than I thought. Mm -hmm. So we're doing that, and that opened up the idea for me that, yeah, it's actually possible that one could, I don't know, experience that at least. Sure, lots of people, <clears throat> you know, hundreds of thousands of people are, you know, have, have grown up tremendously. You know, it's not like it's a rare... It's a really, really rare thing. Lots of people have grown up. It's, it's, it's the obvious intuitive way to go. Kindness and caring and, and uh, empathy, all those things enriching your life. You know, so people just grow up because it works better. So yeah, that's not, it's not surprising, but there's, there's literally tens of thousands of people who are writing books and making videos and talking and 
they may have their own beliefs and their own little idiosyncrasies and things they, they believe in that sort of thing, but it doesn't matter. If you see it in the bigger lights, you see that, yeah, they really onto something. They understand at a deeper level, and that makes them part of the solution. Even if they don't have it all right, that's all right. They just have pieces of it right. That's still part of the solution. Yeah, and you can be part of that same solution. It's not, it's not like this is just for other people. You know, you have to be a guru and live in India. You don't. Yeah, I kind of thought, you know, there was Buddha, I don't know, maybe Jesus and Lao Tse and, you know, how many 10,000 lives do I have to have? But uh, maybe it's not quite that hard. <laughs> no, it's within reach. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right, Tom, we have another question from Abdul and he's on audio. Would you like to go ahead? Yes, thank you. Hello, Tom. Hi, Abdul. Uh, so I basically have two questions. I'll read the first one first. Um, it's dealing with unstable family members. I have heard you say that when someone is so lost that they cannot be helped, that is, reasoning with them is not going to bear any results. We need to provide them with a safe space and let them be while respecting the situation as they are where they are in their evolution. But this can have great, grave consequences, especially financial and psychological consequences for the people living with such people. When walking away is not really an option, how should one deal with a family member who is highly unstable, such as depressed, bipolar, has the capacity to get extremely angry at the slightest disagreement, and is constantly fighting on imagined charges? What is the best way to maintain harmony with such people? How should we approach it? So this is question number one. Okay. Be as positive as you can, which in this case may be Keep the relationship you have with them, the conversations you have, the things you say and do, very superficial. Try not to go into places that that uh, create um, these what triggers that makes the person go off and, and anger or whatever. And if that's possible, then just avoid the triggers. If that's not possible, because it doesn't matter what you say they're going to go off. You know, some people are to that point that even if you go in and say, well, the sun's shining today, that's a good thing. And that's all you say, they'll have something really negative in return to say about that. And that there really isn't any space to open up that's positive space with them. Then I would say if you you have to interact with them, let the let the negativity just slide on by. Just, it was there, don't react to it, don't correct it, don't say, well, that's awfully negative of you, or could you have a more positive attitude or anything? Just let them, if they go on and get, go off on a, on a tirade about how awful it is when the sun shines, then let it go and change the subject. Talk about something else after that. So I guess I'm saying be careful not to push any buttons as much as you can. And uh, maybe ask them questions uh, that uh, about things that you know they like or that they if, they, if there's anything in their life that is positive or that they do, maybe they're a gardener and they grow flowers or maybe they collect stamps or whatever it is. If there's anything in their life that is 
that is uh, neutral or positive, then that's the subject of choice when, when you're around them. The idea is that if you can maintain a positive attitude while you're around them, you will help them let go of some of their negativity. It will just work that way. So if you can remain positive, then a couple of things will happen. One, they will want to interact with you more often, which may be a problem for you because maybe you're trying to limit those interactions, but don't. If they want to interact with you more often because you're the one person that can interact with them without getting negative, then you're actually helping them deal with their negativity. You're helping them see another way. You're helping them realize that, that uh, there are conversations that can happen that aren't negative, and that'll ha actually help bring them back. But if every time they say something and go off on, a, on how awful something is, you either disagree with them or just agree with them, then that kind of confirms their attitude. Either way, if you disagree with them, it confirms their attitude because obviously you don't know what you're talking about. And if you agree with them, well, you're not helping them you know, elevate beyond that. So you're kind of stuck in a hard place there. So try to find something, some part of their life, maybe even its memories, something that happened 30 years ago that was really good. You know, well, what did you do in the war, you know, or whatever? Something that they could tell you about that they take, you know, have some pride in. Just talk about the things that are positive to them and don't react to the things that are negative that they say. Even if they insult you and call you names and whatever, just kind of don't, don't just kind of smile at them because then they know you're patronizing them. But just let it go by. Accept it. Okay. All right. I see how you feel. Well, you know, if, if I had done that differently, would that, would that have been better? See, uh, if they're talking about, you know, the bad things you do, you can ask them some questions about, well, how could I do it better? What would have been uh, better ways to do that? And then if they say anything at all, even if it doesn't make any sense to you, thank them. Thank you. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Try to give them a sense of actually being worthy and valuable in some way and it'll help them let go of their negativity. So find something positive to talk about or somehow arrange the situation for them to tell you something helpful. And again, it doesn't matter, even if it's off the walls. Oh, that's a really good idea. I'll go look that up and, and uh, see if I can't uh, learn more about it. And then you need to go look it up and, and learn more about it because the next time that's your in for the next conversation. Oh, I looked that thing up you said and and you were right, you know, such and such. That kind of giving them positives is as much as you can possibly do to change the situation. But that's not guaranteed to change the situation. Some people are really committed to their misery. And they won't let go of that misery no matter how hard you try to wrest it away from them. You know, they, they just, uh, their whole identity is tied up now in being negative. And that's just going to take a much longer time. And it may be impossible, in which case just stay as positive as you can and don't expect them to respond in any way. It's not like you're trying to manipulate them into being positive. 
you're just interacting with them in a positive way and avoiding all the negative ways in which you can interact with them and avoid patronizing them and just smiling and nodding your head and then walking away because they know they're being patronized and that uh, doesn't help. So question number one. So question number two is uh, regarding governance and institutions. I read a book called Why Nations Fail, which argued that an important reason why rich nations are richer is because they have functioning institutions, such as the police and the bureaucracy, judiciary. This makes it easier to do business and hence leads to greater wealth generation, resulting in higher salaries and income. My question is, why do some nations have better institutions than others? Is it because people in richer countries are overall more evolved and grown up? What else could explain this global discrepancy in functioning versus non-functioning governance institutions? Well, not necessarily more grown up, but definitely more experienced. Um, building a civilization requires generally a lot of generations. You know, it's not something that happens real quickly, and it's not because of certain individuals, uh, at least not if it's lasting. It, pro it may have centered around certain individuals to get it started, but then if it's going to last, if it's one of those things that lasts for many generations, it's because the people learn the processes of getting along. They learn the processes of, oh, shall we say, the, the, the kind of the social rules, like being aware of other people, being polite, not starting arguments. Um, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of rules that are kind of in your social box, in your cultural box about how to, how to get along with others, how to, uh, carry on conversations, you know, how to be positive, you know, don't, you know, don't get in fights, arguments are non-productive, you know, don't um, start conversations out by telling people what it is they've done wrong, you know, things like that, just rules that you learn how to act that lubricate the social process. And if that becomes acculturated to where over time, that's just the way the rules are in the culture, then people will do that and they will nod and they'll see you on the street and they'll say, Oh, how are you today? Not because they really care how you are today, because that's just a nicety that they say, because they've learned when you meet somebody, you ask them how they're doing. Maybe you even pause for a second or two to allow them to answer. But, you know, so it just makes people's days a little less negative if there's these positive things going on. And many of them eventually become very superficial, like, how are you? You know, when you don't really want to know maybe how they are, but it's just what you say. It's a nice pleasantry. Starts out with a positive thing. They're asking about you. They don't say, oh, hey, let me tell you about myself. You know, that's kind of off-putting if everybody you meet wants to tell you about themselves. You know, pretty soon you try not to meet people. You'd be, you know, change the side of the street you're walking on just to avoid people. So it's a, it's a just cultural habits. So the people themselves can de-evolve and still maintain their habits of action. 
because they don't necessarily represent quality of being, but habits of how to act and habits of expectation. Well, if I do a crime, if I steal something, then I can expect that, you know, I'll be caught and I will be punished and I will wish I hadn't have done that because the punishment is going to be a lot worse than the benefit I get from stealing that thing. So then you just don't steal it, not because you're such a high quality person, but because your culture has a very negative attitude toward stealing or toward lying or toward cheating. So if you're in a culture, like I was uh, graduate school in the University of Virginia, and they had an honor system. There was no cheating, and everybody just assumed that nobody was going to cheat. And if you were caught cheating, automatically expelled, done. You couldn't be a student at the University of Virginia and cheat. And if you were ever found cheating, you would no longer be a student. It's not like you got a reprimand and, you know, got your knuckles wrapped or, you know, somebody sent a letter to your parents. None of that happened. You just were exited. Only that's the only possible result for cheating, whatever your reasons were. So in that culture, then people just didn't cheat. And partly it was because they didn't want to be thrown out of school, but partly it was because that was the culture. It was just a non-cheating culture. And when nobody cheats and everybody thinks cheating is a bad idea and it's a negative in everyone's mind, then it's not so much that, well, I would cheat, but I don't want to get caught. It's just that I don't cheat because nobody cheats here. You see, it's a, it's a cultural thing. So you live in a culture where cheating is expected or lying is expected. Oh yeah, our congressman or our premier or whatever it is in your government, you know, sure he was on the take and they found him, uh, you know, embezzling money, but yeah, we really don't care because you know, all those politicians do that. And it wasn't a whole lot of money and so on. So, you know, we'll reelect him because that's expected. You know, if you have that kind of a culture, then you have a culture that allows cheating and lying. And if you have a culture where cheating and lying is redefined as not something negative, but something positive. Oh, you're clever. Yes, look, you tricked those other people into giving you, giving you their money because you lied to them and you cheated them. You know, you're, you're more clever than they were. They were stupid because they fell for it. Well, if you're in a culture that sees cheating and lying as being clever and a good thing, buyer beware. You know, seller, you can do anything you want. Buyer beware. If you trick the buyer, well, it's the buyer's problem for being so naive. Then you will find a culture where everybody lies, cheats, and steals, and it's whatever they can get away with. And if they get caught, oh, well, okay, you caught me. But then they'll go right on doing it, but be just a little more clever next time. So that would not be a nice culture. That'd be a culture you'd want to move out of. But we have cultures like that. Oh, yeah, there's pickpockets around. There's lots of pickpockets. You know, young children, other people, pickpockets. And we just tell all the, all the, the visitors here to make sure your money is, you know, in a, some kind of a pouch tied onto your 
stomach and under your shirt because that way you won't get pickpocketed. But pickpocketing has just pickpocketing just become a part of the culture. Sure, there's going to be pickpockets when you go down there. Nobody particularly tries to get rid of the pickpockets because it's just a part of the culture. Well, when stealing is part of your culture, then that's you know you live with that. It doesn't just stay focused on pickpockets. It's general. So I think what happens is that you have people of good quality often who start organizations or, you know, tribes that are successful. If those tribes then become into, into countries or, you know, take over locales and eventually have countries, there's some value there. And when there are people of value at the helm, then suddenly everything gets better. And it gets better until people expect that value and until somebody comes along who doesn't have high quality and they somehow take over because nobody's paying attention because everybody assumes that everybody else is going to be up front and straight. And then it goes downhill. And then pretty soon it's the cheaters and the liars who are cool and everybody wants to emulate those. You know, kids today, who do they emulate? Gangsters, you know, they want to be tough. They want to be cool, you know. They want to do all these kinds of things. So when you're when you're six years old, you know, you, you, uh, who's your hero in the movie? <laughs> it's the it's the gangster, you know, who's your hero in the movie. Well, that's not a good sign in a culture when the gangsters are are the heroes. But we play to that in our in our culture. So I think that's the. The culture will go from successful to not so successful and then back to successful again after the not so successful kind of shows itself as not being good. And sometimes they just degenerate and keep degenerating until they get to a point where it's really hard to come back. I don't know, but they probably start with a group of people who are a little higher quality, who set up good rules and good examples and push good quality social, you know, concepts like not cheating, not lying, not stealing, um, these kinds of things, care about other people. And people get that and they say, okay, and they tend to act that way, act that way, not necessarily be that way, but they tend to act that way. And it makes a civilization where everything seems really nice until something happens and you find out that you know, when the going gets really tough and, you know, almost everybody's out of work and the jobless rate is really high and, and there's no money goes around and suddenly you realize a lot of these people were just acting that way. They really weren't that way. And you find out that it's a little different and the world's suddenly rough out there and people are lying and cheating and stealing. And you say, gee, what happened? Well, that's because they were acting and they were acting because that's what the culture expected them to do. But it doesn't mean that they grew up any. So I wouldn't look at those successful cultures and say that they're somehow superior, but they do somehow seem to have gotten to a point where the general cultural rules and culture is kind of a hard thing to change. You know, culture takes generations to change a culture that for some reason, for some people or some very good examples came along and improved the culture to the point, and maybe it takes, you know, another century before that, that those good rules kind of dissipate. 
But if there isn't any other people come along and also are inspirational on a positive side, eventually those, you know, just acting will quit. You constantly need to be feeding that with, with uh, positive thinking and, and good attitudes and low quality, I mean, high quality, low entropy consciousness has to keep re-energizing it. And then it'll drift away until it gets to be a place that nobody wants to live anymore. Now it's Nastyville. Nobody wants to be there. And then there'll be this big reformation will come along. And people say, well, you know, we need to stop blind cheating and stealing. And maybe they'll do that for a generation or two. And then maybe it takes another five or six decades before it kind of slowly unravels again. So it, it could be that. Whereas if you have a culture that doesn't have any of those rules, it's really tough to get one to get it started. It's really difficult to kind of flow downhill. So I can't answer your question exactly why it's like that, but it's not because the people in those cultures are necessarily in general, a higher quality and individual. They act better, perhaps most of the time because their cultural norms have demanded it. But other than that, I think there's very little difference in people almost everywhere. Perfect. Thank you so much. Tom, we have a question waiting in the wings. Uh, Ralph, if you'd like to go ahead with your question. Ralph's on audio. Yes. Thank you, uh, Donna. Um, Tom, uh, I have a question about it's about time. Um, my question would be what you think whether or how probable future events can influence present events. Do you think there is a feedback loop of future probable events to the present timeline? Or in other words, will future events influence our present free will decisions? The background of this question is that according to the fifth philosophy, this is possible. And I would be interested in your opinion <clears throat> about that point. Okay. <clears throat> if, if you are a person who is very intuitive and you've developed that intuitive side and you kind of consistently, maybe even without even trying, you, you get data out of databases, then you may get data out of the future probable database and you may have some intuitive insight into you know, what good choices might be by having some probable future data. And in that case, yes, the probable future can affect the present choices because the, the communication connection between that future and the present is your own intuitive ability, your own intuitive um, connection to that probable future database. So there is a there is a connection line there, but where you have a person who has no uh, connection, their intuitive side is undeveloped. They're a hundred percent intellectual side. You know, they just live in their head, don't have that connection. Then there's no connection between that probable future and them. But now there's some people who have that connection but don't really know it. 
and don't really, you know, try to develop it. It just does. It develops because they have developed it. What do we say uh, at the at the non-conscious level? It's just something that they maybe brought with them from a past life, or it may be that they just happened to luck into some kind of uh, a method of getting information. You know, that it wasn't something they really tried to do. It just something they did, in which case then they may have that intuitive link even and be totally unaware about it. Now, all of us gather information from the databases and we're unaware of it. It's just to the extent to which we do that. That's kind of at the at the is the question. So if everybody did that to a very great extent, then you'd have a lot of influence in the present of the, you know, the future probability would influence the present a lot. But if that's only done to a very, very, very slight degree by everyone, then the probable future only affects the present to a very, very slight degree. So it depends on the people in it. Some people have, yeah, it affects a lot. Other people just a tiny little bit and they don't know about it and others perhaps none at all. So, it depends, but the, the, the potential for that connection is certainly there. Now, there's people who have precognitive dreams and they say, well, I dreamed that when I got in my car and went to work, well, you know, what is it? The, you know, the coming Wednesday, I was in this big crash. So they take another route and sure enough, there's a big crash right about the time they'd been there, but they weren't in it because they took, you know, they made changes. So that sort of a thing is is possible as well. So that's the future probability changing the present. And it happens at a very low level for most people. A lot of people have hunches and nudges and they don't really know where they come from. Sometimes they're attached to future probable databases and sometimes they're just attached to their own ego. So does that help, Ralph? Um, yeah, yes, thank you. Maybe one follow up question. So if you would have the perfect link to this future database, so and you would have the perfect feedback loop to it. So is there then still something left as time? Because you cannot distinguish between um, the root cause and the effect anymore. So if you always uh, get feedback from the future and use it for your free will decisions in the present, Mm -hmm. How is uh, the the cause effect relationship then uh, visible or transparent anymore? So is then there time left? Is there something like time in this moment, or is it just a permanent moment of something? Well, well, there'd be a couple of things that would make that that situation. Um, you know, this perfect this perfect connection. I don't think it's ever perfect. You know, there's never a perfect connection. Um, that future probable database is just probable. It's not necessarily what will happen. It's only the way it looks like, you know, it's just a probability. Things look like they're more probable, but some of the time it just won't work out. Something that you got this message that was going to, you know, that you were in a crash. So you go another direction, but there was never any crash. Okay. So then that tends to make you not pay too much attention to those nudges because you 
to you pay attention to them and nothing seems to happen and after a while then you forget about it so it it, it tends to discourage you if that happens the people generally don't get but so good at it because they have they have things that discourage them as well as things that encourage them you know to use that kind of information and it's never going to be a perfect uh connection if it was then if you were a wise person you would not use it except very exceptionally like to maybe avoid an accident or something like that something that would come to you and often it wouldn't be about you it would be about somebody else somebody you care about you'd get some information and you'd you'd uh, feel like maybe you needed to tell that person to be careful the next trip they take you know that the make sure their car is in good condition because you had a premonition that they were you know the car was going to stop running they were going to go off to the side of the road and after that things got worse so things like that you might get these premonitions and you can tell people but again they should remain skeptical as should you of everything that you get so I, there is no perfect process if you had a process that was say at 80% or 75% you would if you were wise again you wouldn't use it you would just you'd let it you would realize that by using things like that you create a bubble that you live in that is not natural that does not it ruins your you know the stuff happens and we get to deal with it it kind of ruins that that learning process where things just happen and we have to deal with them as they happen you start looking at probable futures you start uh understanding you know what people are thinking you're using your, your you know your remote viewing to see what's going on so you start using all of these paranormal things to gather information so that you make the right choices make things come out the way you want them to come out and you're not living in a in the real world anymore of things happening and you get to deal with it and learn from the from the choices you make so you take yourself out of the of the uh you know it's like being in school and you never study or read any of the books or read any of the material all you do is cheat you know you get the, you get the answers from the, the people who took the class the year before and so you're making really great grades but you're not really learning anything so you may look like a genius on the outside at wow everything just falls perfectly for this guy but you're not learning anything so a wise person just wouldn't do that it would never happen now a person who wasn't wise probably wouldn't ever be able to get that process to where it was even 70 or 80% accurate they'd probably have it in such a problematical uh state of accuracy that they they never get into that problem so i think the problem is self self fixing in that way it's if you if you had the if you had the control of your intuitive side which means you've let go of fear you've let go of ego you've let go of a lot of beliefs to the point that you could do it you wouldn't and if you can't do it then it's not a problem <laughs> so if you see what i mean it kind of solves its self in that way
but a theoretical question of, you know, does it, would it mess things up? You're talking about time because now you wouldn't have any causality because you'd know everything that was going on. Well, theoretically that might exist, but I don't think it's a real issue or a real problem. And that's the bubble I'm saying. You'd create this bubble that you'd live in and the bubble would kind of be outside of the normal cause and effect. You'd always be healthy because you always could heal yourself of any problem that you had. You would always, you know, be at the right place at the right time because you'd have all the information to do that. And pretty soon your life would be sterile, uninteresting, and you'd stop learning anything. So though it could be done, I don't think it would be done because the people who could do it wouldn't want to. Thank you very much, Tom. So maybe one last uh, question about that. Many gurus uh, report about the perfect moment to experience one moment. So this means that it's a little bit different from this process that um, you are referring to. So what do you think about these moment situations? And I thought this, uh, um, this feedback loop would uh, lead to such a moment event. Uh, so gurus always tell that They have clarity, they experience a certain moment. And what is it to you, such a moment then? Is it a, a, um, a situation without time? Uh, well, I don't know enough about what you're talking about as far as the gurus saying that they reach a perfect moment. I don't really relate to that personally, and I haven't read enough about that. So I'm not sure I know what you're talking about. Do you have any examples of of yeah just yesterday we had a talk with Jürgen Siebel um and he was referring to um this moment of clarity so he um, um he has written a book the 10 minutes moment for example so uh, he was mm -hmm. where he was uh, immediately had complete clarity and it wasn't a, yeah. a process it was just an experience yes well i think what happens there is it's it's kind of a something that doesn't happen all the time that's why it's a moment it isn't it isn't a life that's full of perfect clarity it's a it's a moment if you if you just happen to get all the pieces all aligned all at the same time you know i think you can you can have moments like that but it doesn't last long before something gets back out of line and you know you can't do it anymore But just people do have moments of insight. You know, they have moments of clarity. They have moments where they understand lots of things. And sometimes they actually do understand lots of things. And sometimes they just feel like they understand lots of things. And sometimes it's impossible to tell the difference whether that was just a feeling that you had great clarity or whether you actually did have great clarity. There's often the things that you have clarity about are such a, such a big scope that you can't really make that, you know, logical analysis of whether or not your clarity was actual or imagined. So things can come together, particularly in a developing mind. You know, we don't develop all of our understandings all at once. We develop, you know, kind of piecemeal, pieces of us. 
So there'll be parts of our ego that are well tamed. They don't roar up and cause us trouble anymore. And there's other parts that aren't so well tamed. And there's parts of our understanding that we really get something at a deep level and other parts it's still just superficial. So any person in their process of growing up is a mixed bag of, of highly developed, moderately developed and undeveloped going on all together. And those things tend to change from moment to moment. You know, sometimes people who uh, practice their intuitive side, they'll have hot spells and cold spells. There'll be a time when they'll get, you know, 10 or 20 remote viewing targets dead on, all in a row. And then the next day, they don't get any. You know, it, it kind of comes and goes. You know, they have this moment of clarity to where they seem to just remote view very accurately. Well, that means they haven't put all the pieces together to do that consistently, but sometimes everything lines up just right. So they're just in a moment where they hit a deep relaxation, which is just at the same time that their mind is, you know, doing the remote viewing, which is just at the same time when their theta state is very steady. And all of these things that tend to be in flux all happen to just be at the right space at the right time. And bingo, you've got this moment. The moment may last for 10 minutes or an hour or even a day, but then it goes away. So what that says is that you could be there all the time. You could live in that space, but you're not that well developed yet to live in that space. But you're close enough that you get to, you get to experience it every once in a while in the moment. You know, it comes and you can experience it. So I think that tells you that some parts of you are well developed, other parts not so much, but every once in a while, you get a vision of what you could become, of what you are capable of. And sometimes that vision may be given to you by the LCS just for you to understand it, to give you some encouragement of what you're working toward. So a person that's in the process of developing could be given these moments of clarity just to keep them turning, just to keep them active, just to get them to write a book about it, you know, so that other people will now have advantage of knowing that that's possible and that you can do these things, that that is within the, the realm of consciousness. So there's lots of reasons why that might take place. But if you develop yourself sufficiently, then that moment would be your life. You would live in that state of clarity and that would be your normal state. So I, that would be my guess. I'm not sure exactly, but I think it's the, I think it's the, the right times coming together. I mean, I see that all the time when I'm giving these courses. There are some people who will just be so right on in their remote viewing and sometimes their healing is, is excellent and they get targets and they diagnose them right. And then the next day they came in and, and nothing works. And as far as they're concerned, what's the difference? Yeah. Yesterday I was a genius, you know, today I'm an idiot. You know, what's the difference? And the difference is just tiny little differences in the stress level and attitude, the things that are on your mind, the things you were thinking about just before you started the exercise. You know, all these little tiny things add up to a totally different experience.
And when you're still learning, these little things just kind of come and go and change on their own. Like when you're learning to meditate and all you're trying to do is get the thoughts to stay out of your mind. Yeah, well, that takes some practice. But zing, there comes a thought, you know, you get rid of that. And zing, there comes the next one. And they're just kind of random stuff. And other times you sit down and meditate for 15 minutes and no thoughts come in. Then the day after that, here's zing, zing, zing. The thoughts are all over. Our, our consciousness, our state of consciousness is in flux all the time. And sometimes with good luck, and if we have enough understanding, we'll get moments of clarity where we actually see more and, and, are, and get bigger pictures than we would ordinarily. Whether, the, whether we earn them, whether it's just lucky, or whether the system gives them to us for encouragement and for the encouragement of others, all of the above, you know, all of those things, all of those things happen.